My name is Zach. For those of you who don't know me, I'm lead pastor here at Antioch. I want to welcome you to church this Sunday. Very glad that you are here. I want to ask you a question or bring something to mind for you, a memory, a remembrance. I want you to think about your first job, your first job. If you're on an interesting conversation topic when you're with a group of friends, ask everyone to share their first five jobs. You'll learn some interesting stories about people and some unique skills picked up along the way. But I want you to think about not your first five jobs, your first job. I'll tell you what mine was. Um, First time I was doing something not working for my mom or my dad, uh, I got assigned or I got an internship at my dad's place where he worked, uh, working for another guy that had like a high school summer intern program. Uh, And so somehow I got signed up for it. I was probably 16, 17. I was very excited about this kind of first real world work experience. Uh, the, The only challenge was I think that the guy that I was assigned to, to be his intern, uh, didn't really want an intern. I didn't really want a high school student that he was in charge of for about 20 hours a week. I don't think he was interested in the deal. Uh, and so I would often show up to his office and he was intentional about arriving there before I got there, opening the door uh, and then going off and doing whatever he was going to do. And so I would arrive at the time I was supposed to arrive and I would need to sit in his office and wait for him until he came back from doing whatever he was going to do. And this was the days before you had the iPhone that you could look at. And so I'm just sitting there and he had a computer in his office. And I was like, well, maybe if I can get into that, I can play solitaire or I can play Minesweeper or whatever it may have been, except it was locked. And so the only thing that it would show was the screensaver with a bouncing ball. Y'all remember the bouncing ball screensaver? And so I would sit there and I would try to look away. You know, I just try not to try not to look at it. And then my eyes would just go back to it over and over and over again, trying to watch and see where's the ball going to bounce this time, even though you know, because you've already watched it so many hours. Then I'd look down at my watch and be really discouraged because only two minutes had passed since the last time I looked down at my watch. That was a very long and difficult, uh, boring summer. And I remember I would drive home from work and be like, oh my goodness, I am supposed to go to school so that I can get a job like this and then work 40 or 50 hours a week, uh, uh, 50 weeks a year for the next 40 years of my life. This is what I have to look forward to? Oh my goodness, this was bad news, right? And when I tell that, your first job may not have been like mine was. It may not have been the same thing. But I bet everyone in here has had those feelings at work where you're like, oh my goodness, I'm going to have to do this for the rest of my life. Are you kidding me? Right? Uh, We've seen here in this this teaching series we've been in that as Americans, we're going to spend 90,000 hours of our lives at work. And by and large part, 90% of Americans when surveyed felt like there's very little purpose, there's very little passion, there's very little meaning in the jobs that we spend so much time at, that we feel disconnected and disengaged and and discouraged about the lack of purpose or meaning with the work that we're doing. When we turn to Jesus, what we see is that he informs, he inspires uh, the work of our hands. He fills up our meaning bucket. It's what we've been learning in this series. They were all looking for meaning when it comes to the jobs that we do. 
And when we look to him, he begins to put things, perspectives, truths, experiences in our lives that fill our meaning bucket up when it comes to work. Some of the things that we've learned is that you matter to God, that all people matter to God. And because you matter to God, God has given you work to do or has work for you to do that matters, that's significant, that is important. You matter to God and you have work that matters to God. And when we see that, we start to realize that God's the one that wants to fill our meaning bucket up with the jobs that we have. And the first step in that we learned is realizing that our gifts and our work and our strengths are not primarily about making us great, but they're primarily about making others great. They're not primarily about me and mine. They're about him and them. And when we begin to adopt that perspective, when we begin to look at life through that lens, life begins to flow. Because life flows when we center it towards loving God and loving others, not towards just being all about ourselves and our own advancement. And we learn four questions that help us rethink our jobs so that when someone asks you, what do you do? And you say, well, I'm an analyst and no one understands what that means. Uh, You can have four things to say about your jobs that would engage people, but would also help you see, oh, this is the purpose behind what I'm doing. First one is, who do you serve? Who do you serve at, at your work? What problems do they have? How do you meet those needs and why do you do it? We took those four questions and we began to apply them to our jobs to reframe and rethink the work that you and I do every single day. And I've heard so much feedback from those questions of really making an impact, just going into work and seeing life through new lenses. We learned that even though we have important work to do, that we are more important than the jobs that we have. That you have a greater value than your scorecard at work, whether it's a sales quota or test you're trying to get kids to pass or some performance in whatever industry you're in, you have more worth than how well you do at work this month, this week, this year. That you are significant because of what God has said about you. You're not going to work looking for significance and hoping I can be something great. You've been made great by the love and the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so we go to work from significance, not for significance. And we've learned that we need spiritual rhythms, spiritual disciplines, Christian practices in our lives, like Sabbath and scripture and prayer and gathering to worship and these type of habits that help us to stay rooted in God. Help us to stay rooted in who we are. Help us to stay rooted in our purpose when the pressure changes of life come our way. We've learned that as we begin to think about our work, that we want to look for our anointed fit. We want to look for the work that we're made for, that God has designed us to do. And we learn five C's to help us with that and, and a way to think about our jobs that will help us grow more and more and more into our anointed fit. It has been a really rich series. It's been one of my favorite. I've heard from so many of you on this of how it's really been encouraging you and inspiring you. And one of my favorite things uh, about this series has been the testimonies that we've heard each and every week as different ones of you have shared how your faith in Christ informs and inspires the work of your hands. And I've just been so encouraged as your pastor. 
It's so amazing to see the way that different ones of you, I could probably have taken another 50 or 100 stories from within our church of people who are working with this kind of intentionality and this kind of faith and this kind of love, all the way from patent attorneys to stay-at-home moms to nurses to college professors uh, to entrepreneurs and everything in between. So I just want to encourage you. I I know there's a lot of things we could work on as a church, a lot of ways we could get better and all of those things. But one of the things that I've seen is that there is a grace on your life. There's a grace on our church, a redemptive strength in the area of work and to work from a place of faith and discipleship to Jesus. And I'm just so proud of you. I'm so proud of you. You're doing such a great job. And today what I'd like to do is to complete this teaching series There's so much more we could say on work, but we're going through the gospel of Luke and we're going to look at one final kind of story as it relates to the work of our hands today. And when we think about uh, this story, this is such what we're going to learn today or be reminded of is such an important part of filling our meaning bucket. If you miss what we're going over today, if you miss the big idea of today and you don't uh, live it out in your life, your meaning bucket when it comes to your job is always going to be leaky. It's always going to be leaking out. You're going to be putting stuff in. You're going to be like, man, I'm inspired today. I'm inspired today. And and it's just going to leak right out of it if you miss what we're going to look at today, the, the next thing that Jesus would want to say to us today. And so we're going to hit that. Uh, final lesson today, tomorrow, or next Sunday rather, we're starting a new teaching series called Anchor of Hope. And it's all about how Jesus gives us hope and empowers us to carry hope into dark and uncertain situations. And we've been going through the Gospel of Luke for the last two years, and this series is going to bring us to the end of the Gospel of Luke. And it's going to bring us into the hope that Jesus gives to all of us to have and to carry. And so I want to encourage you to make plans to be a part and to prayerfully include many in your life who you know, man, they could use a message of hope because Jesus is our anchor of hope. On October the 27th, we're going to have our friend Daniel Roby, who's the director of Austin Street Center, one of the largest homeless shelters here in Dallas. And a part of our church is going to be preaching. That's going to be exciting. And then November the 3rd, we're, we're going to have a theme for that Sunday called Passport Sunday. And it'll be about God's heart for the whole world. And it probably will also involve some funny passport pictures. So I want to encourage you about those things coming up November the 10th. We're having baby dedications. You'll hear more about that later. We'll be dedicating children to the Lord, and that'll be an exciting time. We have an exciting fall ahead of us. But to our text for today, Luke 16, uh, we're going to be in verse 19 through verse 31. And so the big idea for today, the big lesson to be learned, is that as we work, God blesses us. But that blessing is not meant to stop with us, that we are blessed by God in order to be a blessing. That the way that you go about your job and the money you earn and what you get from your job is about your life, but it's about more than your life, that you are blessed by God in our finances in order for us to be a blessing. And even more than just a generic way to be a blessing, we are blessed by God in our finance to be a blessing to the poor of the earth. 
the poor of our nation, the poor of our city. God cares about the poor. And until we realize this and until we realize that our work is to help us to also care about the poor and to bless the poor and to advocate for the poor, if we miss that, we're always going to be leaking in our meaning bucket. Our purpose is always going to be just kind of getting away from us. But if we'll realize that, oh man, this will fill your meaning bucket when it comes to your job. So let's look at how Jesus teaches us this in Luke chapter 16. I'd encourage you to take out your Bible, take out your phone. There's one, there's a, a Bible in the seat underneath the, the rack in front of you. You can pull that out. Uh, we're gonna go through God's word today. I encourage you to do that. Uh, as we read Luke 16, verse 19, Jesus speaking, and he said, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. So opening scene of the story, Jesus teaching, and we see on one hand, we see this man who's very rich. He's described as wearing fine linens and dressed in purple, which was like the designer clothes of their day. This meant he shopped at the right stores. He had the right clothes. He had the right brands. He had all of that. He's dressed to the nines and he lived in luxury every day. I mean, he was, he was living well. He was well off. His job, his business had done well for him. Whether it was a family business, whether it was money he inherited, or it was just a job that he did, man, he had earned a lot of money through his work, and he's living and enjoying the fruits of that. That's the first character. Second character, in verse 20, at his gate was a beggar named Lazarus, right? And so you see part of the scene, you've got the rich man, and in the same scene, you have a beggar named Lazarus. And this is meant to be a contrast. This is meant to, for us to see two things that don't seem like they should go together placed right side by side. And this man named Lazarus uh, is an opposite to the rich man. Whereas the rich man was dressed in the best of clothes, right? Lazarus was only dressed in sores. Whereas the rich man ate the best of food, Lazarus just hoped for scraps that fell from the rich man's table. And in their day, what that specifically meant was that they didn't have utensils, they didn't have napkins, and so when they'd eat, they'd eat with their hands, and they needed to clean their hands. And so often, rich people would use bread to wipe the food off of their hands and then throw it underneath their table for servants or whoever to come by and to pick it up. And so Lazarus is at the gate, the rich man is feasting, and Lazarus is so hungry and so poor, and so low that he's just thinking, man, if I could just have a piece of bread that has the hand wipings of the rich man on it, that's what I would just hope for. That's how down he is. Whereas the, the rich man uh, obviously had servants to serve his needs. We're going to read about his family later. He had relationships around him. All Lazarus had around him. The only things that seemed like they cared for him were some street dogs that would come and would lick his sores. 
Now, this isn't your golden whatever with a great pedigree, which I mean, great. Have a nice dog like that. I just want you to see these are street dogs. These are low, like low, mangy dogs that want to come and lick the oozing sores of Lazarus. Get the contrast and don't look away from this. Don't, don't turn your eyes from this. This is the scene that Jesus wants us to see, and it's so applicable to the work that we do all the time. My four-year-old told me this week uh, from Mother's Day out, he was telling me, Dad, I'm really sorry. I was trying to do the right thing, but these boys, they were making funny faces. And I was trying to look at, at my desk and, and do the right thing, but I just, I just couldn't look away, Dad. They were so funny. I just couldn't look away. Let this be one of those things that you're like, I just can't, I can't look away from this. I can't look away from this contrast of here. You have the wealthy of the wealthy and you have the poor of the poor. And don't miss the many faces of poverty that we see in Lazarus. I spent years 18 to 30 of my life uh, largely living and working amongst the poor, people that were uh, materially poor, financially poor in my city, in our nation, the nations of the earth. But I learned an interesting thing from my friend Daniel who runs the homeless shelter who's going to come and speak to us uh, in two weeks. He said, you know, so often... People come to the shelter, they end up here, not because their primary issue is economic poverty. They're definitely dealing with that. But he said, for most people, when times are hard, you have someone you could call. If you couldn't make things come together, you have a family member or a friend who would take you and bring you in. He said, most people that end up with me, they, they don't have those relationships for one reason or another. He said, relational poverty it's a very serious issue in addition to material poverty. So I want to make sure that you see Lazarus, he doesn't have anyone who's caring for him or seems to know about him or seems to care that he is alive or dead. He has no one. He's, he's relationally poor. He's materially poor. He's physically poor. He's got these sores all over his body and he has to be carried to beg. So as we look at this, let's look at the many faces of poverty that we see in this story. Let's look at the stark contrast with this man who seemingly has everything. I've got a painting of the story that I can show you. Um, you'll see on, on one side, you'll see the rich man. He's at his table in his nice clothes. And I like it because he's kind of looking off into the sky. Who knows what he's thinking about? But there right before him right in front of his eyes, right at the end of his gate or here at the edge of his table is Lazarus. And the rich man is occupied in his own world and Lazarus is just sitting there just hoping for food to fall from the rich man's table. Well, in verse 22, Jesus tells us the reversal of fortunes happens. He says, the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. So Lazarus passes away, the beggar passes away, and the angels come to him and carry him to Abraham's side. Now this term Abraham's side is not used anywhere else in scripture. Uh, so this isn't, scholars would say this is not Jesus teaching necessarily on the afterlife, it's Jesus telling a story. And Abraham was the father of the faith, and now Lazarus is the one with Abraham. They're in a place of blessing, they are with God, and then you read in verse 23 or 22, the rich man also died and he was buried. 
And he went to Hades, where he was in torment. Hades is a nuanced term in the New Testament, but here what they're referring to is a place for the unrighteous dead, and there he is apart from God, and he is in torment. Fortunes have changed. There's been a reversal. Now, this idea of a reversal of fortunes upon death was a common narrative structure in Jesus' day. It was a common plot line to stories that they knew, and teachers would tell stories with the reversal of fortunes to teach a lesson about life, to teach what a wise, a wise life looked like, what a virtuous life looked like, what life as it was meant to be lived looked like. And Jesus is borrowing from that common storyline that his hearers would have been familiar with. And he's going to tell all of us a lesson about life, a lesson about wisdom, and a lesson about the life that Jesus has designed for us to live. So in verse 23, we see Lazarus, I mean, we see the rich man looks up and he sees Abraham far away and he sees Lazarus by his side. So the, so the rich man is in Hades, he's in torment. He looks up and he sees Abraham and he sees Lazarus. And it's interesting that he knows Lazarus' name. It's interesting that this wasn't just like a random guy. Like he's going to refer by name to Lazarus in the next verse. Like he, he knew Lazarus in his earthly life. And so he calls to Abraham. He says, Father Abraham, have pity on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. Because I am in agony in this fire. So interesting. As he's calling to Abraham, he doesn't talk directly to Lazarus, though he knows Lazarus' name. And in this man's mind, all Lazarus is good for, even in this reversal of fortune state, all he's good for is just to be a servant. Abraham, hey, send Lazarus. We all know he should serve me. Send him here to bring me some water, please, right? He's still, he's seeing a little bit, but he's still not seeing Lazarus for who he is. So Abraham responds and he says, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to, uh, cannot, who want to go from here cannot, nor anyone can cross over from there to us. So Abraham says, sorry, no can do, rich man. No can do, son. We've got a chasm here doesn't work that way. You're there. Lazarus is here. That's the way that it is. So the rich man begins to think. And in verse 27, he says, okay, okay, well then I beg you, Father Abraham, send Lazarus. There again, Lazarus, just good enough to be a servant. Send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. And Abraham responds, well, they have Moses and they have the prophets. Let them listen to him. So the rich man realizes he's not getting out of this spot. But he's like, well, maybe I can help my brothers not get caught like I did. If, if Lazarus will go back from the dead and he'll go to them, then they'll realize the error of us having so much, Lazarus having so little, and us just kind of living our own life and doing our own thing and not caring about people, like not caring about Lazarus. And, and he's saying, just could Lazarus go to them? And when Abraham responds, Moses, they have Moses and the prophets, let them listen to him. What he's saying is, 
They have the Hebrew scriptures. They have God's word. They would have been familiar with the story of God. And this value for the poor, this care that God has, concern that God has, I that God has for the poor of the earth is not isolated to one story here, but it's a theme that runs throughout Scripture. From Old Testament to New, this is one of the major themes of the Scripture. And I want to read you some passages from various parts of the Bible about God's heart for the poor. And I want to ask you a favor as we read these. I find that as Americans, when we begin to talk about the poor, and we begin to read scriptures even about the poor, so often we import our political lenses into understanding God's word. And so we'll read scriptures about the poor, and whether you're a Republican or a Democrat or a Libertarian or somewhere in between, so often the first place that we'll go and the way that we'll interpret these are our convictions about how things should be governed. And I want to challenge you to take those lenses off for a moment. I don't want to talk with you about Washington. I don't want to talk to you about Austin. Those will be very important discussions, but not right now. Right now, I want to talk about me and you. And I want us to open our hearts to what God cares about. And I want us to listen to God's word and let him speak to us, not through our own lenses that we're trying to filter stuff out from, but with open and tender hearts. Because this is important to Jesus. We say that we want to practice the way of Jesus. And and what that means is we want spiritual rhythms and practices in our life, like Jesus' model, prayer, worship, scripture, those type of things to help us live like him. And we want a value system that values the things Jesus values, that cares about the things that Jesus cares about. That's what it means when we say we want to practice the way of Jesus. And this is something Jesus cares about. So I want to challenge you and encourage you to open your heart to the Lord and to let him speak to you through his word. Proverbs 22, verse 23 Do not exploit the poor because they're poor. And do not crush the needy in court, for the Lord will take up their case and will exact life for life. So the word tells us that the Lord is standing behind and in defense of the poor. If you come against the poor, the Lord is going to come against you. Proverbs 19, 17. Whoever is kind to the poor. I get a little emotional on these, so I'll I'll try and make them through them. Whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will reward them for what they have done. So you think, man, sometimes you're kind to the poor. You're like, does this even matter? Is it even significant? I don't know that that really did anything. I don't know what they did with it. All that stuff, right? We can all have those thoughts. But what this is saying is that when you're kind to the poor, regardless of what someone chooses to do with your kindness, you're lending to the Lord. How can a human lend to God? But God is saying, hey, I care about this so much. Any kindness you do to the poor, I'm going to count it as a debt that I need to repay. And I will reward you for what you have done. That's how much God cares about the poor. Proverbs 28, 27. And how many times have I done this? And how many times have you done this in this passage? Those who give to the poor will lack nothing. So back to the meaning bucket. When we realize our work 
is meant to, a portion of it is meant to go to bless the poor, our meaning bucket is full. We won't lack anything. But those who close their eyes to the poor receive many curses. When we close our eyes, when we close our hearts, when we look away, when we harden our heart, when we just kind of move on and just stay focused just on our own life, we're cutting ourselves off from the blessing of God. So convicting. This isn't just an Old Testament thing, a couple Proverbs, a a little story here in Luke. Uh, One of Jesus' most famous teachings I want to read to you is all about God's care for the poor. Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, this is Jesus speaking, and all his angels with him talking about himself, he will sit on his glorious throne, and all the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. So he's speaking about end times judgment. Verse 34, then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer him, well, Lord, um, when, when did we see you hungry and feed you? When did we see you thirsty and we gave you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? When did we see you needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? Verse 40, the king, King Jesus replies, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Jesus cares so much about the poor that he's saying the way that you treat them is directly how you're treating me. That's how much he cares about the poor. And then in verse 41, he says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, and into the eternal flames prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me, and I needed clothes, and you did not close me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. And they'll answer him also, Well, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger? or needing clothes, or sick, or in prison, and didn't help you. And the Lord replies, Truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. That's how much God cares about the poor. That's God's value for the poor. This is important to Jesus. And I know when we read this, our minds go to a lot of places, and and you're kind of like, okay, well, should I just give everything that I have and sell everything that I have and I should never have anything nice and just give it all away or what do I do and we feel guilty and we don't know what to do and we have all these questions and I know and I want to encourage you to have those questions and I want to encourage you not to just move on and just say well I don't know what to do I'm just going to press eject and go over here I want you to let God's word touch your heart and I want it to touch mine and I want it to shape us and the people that value what he values. And I've wrestled with this question a lot, and I've worked through it a lot, and I love this counsel in 1 Timothy chapter 6 from the Apostle Paul to his protege Timothy, 
that I think provides pastoral counsel for all of us, you, me, all of us included, on what it means to actually live this out, to fill in some of the questions of, okay, God cares about this. What does this mean for me? 1 Timothy 6, 17, verse through 19, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. So what he's saying is, Timothy, I want you to command your church. I want you to tell them, you who are rich in, in, this, in this life, don't put your hope in uncertain riches. And I realize when we read this, we're like, well, I'm not rich, you know, because we live in a city where there's the rich of the rich. But factually, if you have a household income of more than $33,000, you're in the top 1% of the planet. Like, let that sink in for just a moment. Top 1% of the planet if you have a household income of more than $33,000. So there are so many people in so many places that would look at you, even if you feel strapped for cash, they would look at you and be like, man, you are filthy rich. Wow. And maybe you don't make $33,000. I bet all of us, though, have blessings in our lives that Paul is wanting us to see that we're not to put our hope in material blessings, but we're to put our hope in God. Because, look at this, God richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. So what this means, you can enjoy from the fruit of your labor, from what you've earned through your jobs, you can enjoy that iPhone 11 with the three cameras. You can enjoy the upgraded coffee at wherever you like to get coffee. Go on a vacation, enjoy life. This is not an asceticism message of like, we just can't have anything. No, God provides everything for our enjoyment. So enjoy life. And enjoy the good things that your work and the finances that you make from your job brings. But don't let it stop with you. Don't let it be only about you. It says, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. So it's saying, enjoy life and realize that some of the money that you're earning from your job, part of your meaning... That that's not just for you always, just to get the next upgrade. Get some upgrades, go for it. But remember, some of that money is for you to be a blessing to other people, that God blesses you in order to make you a blessing. And particularly a blessing to the poor. And he said that if we'll do this, that we will lay up treasure for ourselves as a firm foundation for the coming age that we may take hold of the life that is truly life. That when we begin to see life in this way, when we begin to practice this, when we begin to do this, right, we begin to lay hold of life as it's truly meant to be lived. Like if you wanna live your best life, if you're one, man, I wanna suck the marrow out of life, get a hold of this, that you've been blessed in order to be a blessing. So then Abraham, or so then uh, the rich man responds. He says, no, Father Abraham, if someone from the dead would go to them, they would repent. So he says, yeah, I know Moses, the prophets, I know the Bible says that, but I know my brothers. 
if somebody came back from the dead, like if Lazarus went back to them and said, hey, guys, this is going to be on the final exam. Your brother failed. He sent me to tell you, you know, get your grades up or whatever. Study this. He said, if, if that would happen, they would be okay. They wouldn't end up where I am. They'd realize that the blessings that they have are to be a blessing to others. Now, this is the scary part. Verse 31, Abraham said, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. So what's Abraham saying? He's saying what they don't need is new information. They don't need, oh, this is what's going to be there. Okay, I can make. It's not like they have a lack of information. They wouldn't be convinced if someone went back and told them, hey, this is really going to be there. That's not their main problem. They don't need new information. They need a new heart. It's not lack of knowing. It's lack of caring that he's driving it, that he's drilling it. They need a new heart. And I want to know, do you have the new heart that this is referring to? Or would we, in the end, look at ourselves and say, you know what, honestly, I've been hard of heart. And this is so important right here. Focus in with me for just a moment. Because lots of religions teach, oh, do good things for the poor. And I think there's value in that. But they teach it in such a way where it's like, do good things for the poor, and then you'll earn kind of some sort of righteous status before God. And when we read Matthew 25 and we read that account of the final judgment, we can kind of read it through that mindset. Okay, here's some things I can do. And if I do those things, then God will be pleased with me. And then I'll go to heaven and this will be good. But I want to tell you that 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 heart for the poor, the loving the poor, the giving to the poor is not the root of our salvation. It's the fruit of our salvation. It's not just something that you wake up one day and decide you're going to be a good person and you're going to do all this stuff. That's going to fall flat faster than you know it. But what God wants to do in our lives is he wants to give us a new heart because our love for the poor is meant to flow out of his love for us. That when we catch a hold of the radical, life-changing love of Jesus Christ, what it does is it makes our hearts new. And then we begin to live new. 1 John 3.17, he articulates it like this. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech but with actions and in truth. So what he's saying is if you have stuff and you see someone in need and you don't have any pity there, He said, the problem is not you just need to get some better morals and some better behavior. He said, you haven't connected with the love of God. You've missed the way that God has loved you. You've not let it touch your heart. That we can all relate to Lazarus in so many ways. That we all have experienced the brokenness of life and the pain of sin, even our own sin. And Jesus, unlike this rich man, the rich man looked at the person in need and didn't care and didn't come. Jesus came. Jesus came from the riches of heaven, came to the dust of earth, came to the poor of the earth, people spiritually poor, relationally poor, materially poor, physically poor. He came and though he was rich, 
for our sakes. He took on poverty that you and I might become rich in him. The foundation of our faith starts with God's giving, not ours. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Church, when we realize the generosity of God and the love of God and the way that he has given to us in our need and in our lack and in our failure and our poverty, it changes our hearts. And it makes us into a people who live and work as if we've been blessed in order to be a blessing. And a blessing particularly for the poor of our city, our nation, and the nations of the earth. I want to invite you to stand as we close. I'm going to give you an opportunity here in just a moment. You might be hearing this message and hearing this talk. And as we look through the scriptures, you're like, you know, I, I don't know that I have that new heart. I don't know that I've ever made Jesus Lord. Like I, I, I may have had him as the co-pilot. I may have used him like ways where if I get in trouble, I kind of pull him out. But I don't know that I've ever said, Jesus, you're going to be my driver. I'm going to follow you. You're going to be my king, not my kind of confidant, but you're going to be my leader, right? And it's that decision to follow Jesus is what allows us to connect with and realize and come to know the great love that God has for us because Jesus is the door to us walking in all of that. And so I want to give you an opportunity here in a moment. If you've never made Jesus Lord, if you've never said, he's my boss, he's my king, he's in the driver's seat of my life, I'm going to give you an opportunity in just a moment to, to make that decision. And the way we're going to do it is we're going to pray together. And if that's you, I'm going to invite you to put your hand up in the air in just a moment. Not because we're going to put your name on a billboard or call you up on stage or embarrass you, but to give you an opportunity to physically do something to say, I want to follow Jesus. And you might be here and you're like, well, I did that a long time ago, but I've been away from God for a long time. I felt far from God. I'm trying to get back in church to grow closer to God. I want you to know God is not waiting for you to jump through hoops. He is running down the road. He loves you so much. And I want to give you an opportunity. If you're trying to make your way back to God today, you can put your hand in the air as well. So I want to invite everyone to close their eyes and bow their heads just so this can be a somewhat private moment. And I want to encourage you, if you're already a believer, just to let this settle in your heart and let the Lord speak to you. And if you're here today and you want to make Jesus your Lord, you want to follow him, or you want to make that commitment again, you've been away for a long time, I want to invite you to raise your hand. Just raise your hand. I'm going to pray with you. Praise God. Praise God. Okay, I'm going to lead you. If your hand was up, I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And church, I would just encourage all of us to pray this prayer together. And if you raise your hand, just repeat after me and we'll join in uh, together as a church. Jesus, you're amazing. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. That I might be forgiven. Thank you for rising from the dead. 
that I might have a new heart and new life. I choose to follow you all the days of my life. And I choose to take the blessings that you've given me in order to be a blessing to others. In Jesus' name, amen.